New Noir Space Time Radio. West of the Wilderness. The black and grey was spread like a ragged cloak over the landscape. The ash which formed its contours lay in mounds and valleys, stretching near undisturbed for presumably thousands of miles. Few ventured into this place, save for the Ambrose miners, and certainly no one lived there. But that didn't mean they couldn't try. To the north of the desert, closer to the final kingdom, the winds of a great ash storm clawed at the dunes. Yet amidst the sheets of static air and dust, a girl stood. Almost the entirety of her slim frame was covered in bandages, forming a tight costume to protect her from the elements. A pair of scratched goggles was affixed to her face, and her short, normally blonde hair was coated in black. Over the bandages, a crude leather jacket clung tightly to her, and the scabbard worked into its back, beat gently against it every few seconds, swaying with the winds. Her feet sat in a pair of well-worn bladed skates, sunk up to the soles into the desert floor, ash parting around them. Glancing down at a small compass on the top of her skate, she crouched a little. She leant forward, shifting her centre of gravity and pushing down with her right foot. The ash in front of it parted slightly. She paused for a moment, then pushed down an inch more. With a sudden burst of sand, she sped off through the storm. With the wind at her back, she was going fast, the skates skimming the surface of the ash. In the midst of the surging greys and blacks, a flash of red caught her eye off to the left, standing out clearly against the monochromatic background and she changed direction, speeding towards it. In one smooth motion, she crouched low, picked up the small scarlet crystal in her right hand, adjusting course as she did so, a well-practiced manoeuvre. She held it up to examine it. It was a pyramid shape, but the top third or so of it seemed to have been cut smoothly off. She shoved it into one of many nearly full pockets, and she was finally on her way back home. This was how the desert gave her everything. The boy walks through the archway and into the dynamic land of sounds and colours known as the village fair. He treads on the slightly damp grass to the side of the main walkway, avoiding the main crowd. For some reason, they seem so afraid to step off the main walkway as though they could drown in the slight dew. He stops for a moment looking up at a huge ride where people have strapped themselves onto a metal bar and are spinning at high speeds. The arm which holds this bar swings around, bringing them whirling by him, screaming at the tops of their lungs. He flinches and hurries away, fingers in his ears. The girl enters through the archway at a run, laughing. A large, blonde, furred dog runs with her, the lead left hanging loose. She runs down the walkway and the crowd hurries to part for her. She comes to a stop, panting for breath, outside a stall selling cotton candy. The dog jumps up at her, tail wagging madly, licking her face. She laughs again and hugs him, picking him up under the arms as she does so, so that he's left standing on two legs. She talks to it. Who's a good dog? You are. Yes, you are. She lets the dog down and walks further into the fair. The boy, still hurrying away from the loud screaming, sees a space where two large marquees have been erected close enough together for their walls to be very nearly touching. 
As soon as he sees an opening in the crowd of people, he hurries across the main pathway, his fingers still in his ears, and slips quickly between the heavy plastic fabric of the two large tents. The sound is instantly muffled. He slowly takes his fingers out of his ears and presses further into the space, stepping carefully over the guy ropes. He lies back onto the damp grass. He breathes deeply, closing his eyes and trying to remove himself from the chaos around him. The girl looks around for the place she's agreed to meet someone. She sees it, a flagpole with large banners and streamers attached, flapping weakly in the light breeze. She wanders over, the dog walking at her heel. She doesn't see the person, and so sits down on the edge of a nearby picnic table, scratching the dog's ears and waiting. The boy lies there, dreaming in peace. Then his peace is broken by a frustrated voice. Excuse me, you're blocking the fire exit. The boy looks up at the man who'd just come out of a flap in the side of one of the tents. He stares at him, unblinkingly. The man, suddenly feeling awkward, though not knowing quite why, says in a slightly smaller voice, you'll, um, uh, you'll need to move. The boy sighs, stands up and walks off away from the man and the main walkway into an area of the fair that's not as busy. He glances around, looking for somewhere to find calm. The girl looks at her phone. The person she's waiting for is late. She sighs, looking around for them. They do not arrive. The boy walks to the very edge of the fair, where the tents back onto the forest. It's much quieter here, but it's still too loud. Still searching for somewhere to be in peace, he sees one tent that's different from the rest. Rather than a large white marquee, it's a small purple tent. Rather than plastic, the walls of the tent appear to be made of velvet. The boy approaches and moves the tips of his fingers over the fabric. He trails his hand behind him, running along the velvet wall as he goes over to the flap and moves it aside. The girl's phone vibrates. She looks down at it excitedly, only to see, can't be there today, I'll see you next week. She lets out a noise of frustration, attracting strange looks from the other people sitting at the table. She shoves her phone into her pocket, stands up and stalks off, muttering to herself angrily under her breath. The boy nods to himself as he enters the dark tent. The air is heavy with incense, and the sounds here are muffled even more than they were between the two marquees. An old lady looks up from a round table, on which there's placed a crystal ball. Ah, come to find your fortune. The old lady speaks in a mystical way, as though every word she says is of the utmost importance, but that you aren't quite intelligent enough to understand how or why. When he just stares at her, she smiles warmly, dropping her act. Come for the quiet, then. Sit in the back over there, stay as long as you'd like. She says this in an almost grandmotherly fashion. He's a little surprised by this response, but then smiles a little and nods his thanks. He goes over to the back of the tent and sits down, closing his eyes. Extracts from the Seventh Archive Row 92 Shelf B. Justice and Honour by General Christopher Emmerich.
They are the very last thing you will ever see, so you had better pray you don't. They are the children of the choosers of the slain, born of the shield maidens, the Valkyries themselves. They possess the touch of death. If you fall at their hands, whether it be by magic or blade, it is said that they have the power to decide your soul's final resting place. Your best chance is to fight them honourably. This they will respect. With good enough luck, you may end up in Valhalla. I cannot wish you luck if you were to fight one, but I can wish you a glorious death, and pray that Brunhilde takes mercy upon your soul. Row 210 Shelf B Herfang by Beata Vale. You walked through the forest of autumn, a landscape of vibrant reds and oranges, or the colours of the flame. Your feet trod lightly upon the damp leaves. You stopped, and saw something fleetingly, like a face, peering around the side of a tree not far in front of you. Carefully, now on edge, you drew your sword. You slowly approached the tree, backing up against it. After taking a moment of pause, you turned quickly around the tree, sword ready to strike. The moment you went to swing it, though, you stopped in your tracks, sword hanging in the air as though stuck there. In front of you was the most beautiful woman you had ever seen, wearing a soft dress of the same autumn leaves. I gestured to you with a single finger to come to me as I slowly started to step backwards. You, mouth agape, started to follow, overcome by my sheer beauty. I led you slowly back to the grotto. The sunlight shone down through a gap in the canopy upon the rest of my tribe, all sitting together, or all of us were waiting for you. Our newest guest is here, I told them leading you to sit in the centre of us. Let us help them feel at home here. We all smiled widely, and so did you. The girl walks along just inside the tree line, angrily muttering to herself. The dog follows her tail between its legs, thinking it's disappointed the girl in some way. She kicks a tree hard, then winces in pain. She lets out another grunt of frustration and storms off back into the fair. The dog follows, whining a little. The area she comes to is far less crowded. There are several food stalls along the smaller walkway, but it's too early for lunch, and there are few people there. Suddenly, likely seeing a squirrel, the dog bolts off, running back the way they'd just come. She decides to wait here, knowing that if she does, the dog will find its way back to her. She leans against the wall of the nearest tent, only to stumble a little. Finding that it's not as strong as the thick plastic walls of the other tents, it is in fact a rich purple velvet. She turns around, looking at it curiously. There's a tacky, laminated paper sign above the tent flap, fortunes told, one pound. Shrugging, not having anything else to do, she opens the flap and goes inside. The boy does not look up his eyes still closed. He dreams. The girl looks around the darkened interior of the tent, frowning briefly when she sees the boy, but assumes that he must be a relative of the owner of the tent, 
and thinks nothing more of him. The old woman says, in her mystical voice, Ah, come to find your fortune. The girl shrugs. Sure, why the hell not? She sits on the opposite side of the round table from the woman, who's now taken out a large golden stopwatch. The girl sits there, tapping her foot impatiently, waiting for the old woman to stop staring at it. After half a minute, she says, Can you see it all right? I've got the time on my... The old woman holds her hand up, and the girl stops speaking. She closes the stopwatch and places it on the table and then takes another stopwatch out from under the table and places it next to the first. She clears her throat and says, This is a lesser-known method of fortune-telling, though it works just as well. Better, some might say. She pauses for dramatic effect, not pulling it off very well. The girl taps her foot impatiently. Choose one. The old lady nods at the stopwatches. The girl reaches out and takes the one to her left. The old lady nods and stands up. She mutters thoughtfully, good, good. She looks up at the girl. Wait here, wait here. And she walks out of the tent. The girl stares after her in disbelief. She sighs and resigns herself to waiting there for now. The boy dreams. The girl waits. Everything stops. In a more barren stretch of life, a man weakly stands, ankles burying deeper in the dust of the vast desert, as he suddenly forgets what he was meant to be doing there. His makeshift bandana is tighter than he'd like. Getting more graceless by the second, he tears his hands across his costume, peppering the air with ash. The acrid curl of smoke reminds him of cheap cigarettes. Now the rum-stained garb looks a little more civil. He unceremoniously rifles through the linings of his coat, coarse skin meeting wispy cotton. A brief breath of wind prompts him to scan the skyline as he runs each hidden coin past his fingers. Right of him, the air mottles over the crooked rifts of hollow marine, and further, lie the contrarily ordered spires of the kingdom. In front, he can just about make out the clean, cold light of Eleste, striking parallel to the very edge of the horizon. To the west, there is only the starless void of missing sky over the sable sea, an exact empty cut in the heavens. The sun is just touching the supposed horizon to the west, splaying a deck of orange and pink overhead. Behind him to the north, who knows? He makes a clumsy pivot, sending locks of dust spiralling into dry air, just on the horizon. Through lensless glasses and constant flashing lightning from the distant mountains, he notices a white spot. It moves like tumbleweed, drifting confusingly quickly, drawing closer with every turn. A little too hastily, he smiles. The figure is garbed in hundreds of scarves, rolling swiftly towards the stranger. A mix of dread and disappointment washes over him as he makes out his clearly unwashed outfit, empty glasses and oblivious grin. Gradually the scarves slow their writhing around him, the pale faded blues of his outfit becoming more stable in the stranger's vision. Finally, the scarved one stops walking 
making a rigid eye-line with the intruder. So there they stand, frayed and collected, faded reds and mottled fabrics, ash in waves and air in cinders. Meandering colours paint the two in a dim arc-light. The dusk lies unwound over the desert as the wind began to yawn. With each coil of breeze the strangers lock eyes a little tighter. And a distance to the east, a girl comes to a stop, her skates sinking once more into the ash. In another few moments an immortal will die, a king will vanish, and an ambiguously omnipresent man will wish he'd stayed in bed. But, regardless of its frequent metamorphosis into now, that is later. Presently, a single phrase will serve as the starting pistol for both the greatest triumph and tragedy the world will ever see. As the man in scarves draws his breath to speak, the husk of his voice feels like a silk noose. Why are you dressed like a pirate? New Noir Space Time Radio was written and created by Joe Mayo and Samir Hutchings. West of the Wilderness was read by Andy Harrison. In the Moment was read by Hannah Scott Joint. Extracts from the Seventh Archive was read by Samir Hutchings. To find out more about this podcast, follow us on Twitter at nnstr underscore podcast. That is how we will give you everything.